So with all of that, let's go to prayer, and then we will begin our time in the Word. Father, we do thank you for today. Thank you for all of the expectation, anticipation that leads up to this morning, and for the time we have to celebrate your gift, the gift of your Son, because your salvation is the perfect gift. Um, There's nothing we've done to deserve it. We are undeserving of your grace, and yet you have acted on our behalf and have offered us the most excellent gift, yourself, so that we can um, enjoy fellowship and communion with you, um, as well as eternal life now and forever. And so, Lord, we do thank you for that today, and we pray that as we look at this passage, maybe a familiar passage and one we've read often, we pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see your truth and to behold your majesty and glory that is on display in this passage. And Father, I pray that we would come away from this passage um, with more than just a ho-hum appreciation for what's happened on Christmas, but with a real desire um, and appreciation for the wonder and the glory that you've revealed here. So we thank you again for this time, and we pray your blessing on this reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, then-Governor of New York Andrew Cuomo issued some terrifying words, and I'm sure as soon as I read this quote, you all will remember when he said this. And so in response to the decrease of some infections in New York State during that season, he said these words, the number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. And if you don't continue to do that, you're going to see the number go back up. Now, at this point in the pandemic, as you all maybe remember or have tried to forget, um, Cuomo's press briefings had been hailed as the pinnacle of inspiring leadership in the midst of that pandemic. I think He was nominated for an Emmy that year, which is just ridiculous. Um, And he had been referred to by the media as the king of New York. And so it's obvious that some of that had gone to his head in issuing a statement like that. We all are familiar with his precipitous fall um, after that statement, as scandal after scandal plagued his tenure, eventually forcing his resignation. But I'm not here to talk about his political views or... um, the scandals, or anything like that. What I want to talk about is the theological statement that this man made. As believers, we are obligated to respond when someone in the culture makes a statement like that. God did not do that. And so we as believers have to respond to that question. And so we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, does God ever intervene in the workings of men? Does God ever intervene in this world? And when he does, or if he does intervene, is it to accomplish good, or is it for evil? And I think with Christmas and with the celebration that we know is coming today and the passages that we read, we know that God does intervene in this world. And when he intervenes, it is a wonderful picture of his mercy and his grace when he does so. And so that's what we're going to find as we look at this passage this morning, perhaps a familiar passage, maybe overly familiar, but yet an important one to look at today. So we pick up in Luke chapter 2, so you can turn there with me if you would, and we'll begin reading the first seven verses of this chapter. 
Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there's a couple of things I want to pull from this first section of Scripture. The first is the historical context that Luke gives us. Luke is very concerned that we understand the historical setting of Jesus' birth and what was occurring at this time in the overarching narrative of the world. And he, men- or he indicates that by mentioning Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the first Caesar of the overall united Roman Empire. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and at the death of Julius Caesar, the empire was divided between Mark Antony and Cleopatra and Octavian. And so at, in uh, B.C. 31, at the Battle of Actium, um, Octavian defeated the forces of Cleopatra and Mark Antony and united the entire Roman Empire under one common rule. He extended the borders and established the first or the worldwide empire that we know as the Roman Empire. Now, at this point, he also introduced something called Pax Romana, and that is the Roman peace. And for the next 200 years, the world was at peace. There was the absence of major strife, conflict, or war for the first time in a lot of people's memory. And that was all attributed to the work of Caesar Augustus. And so this census that Caesar is calling for right now comes at a time of relative peace. And so it made sense for Caesar to call for this census because censuses served one of two purposes. You called for a census either to number your nation to see how large of a standing army you would have, or you called for a census to see how large your nation was so that you could know how much tax revenue you could incur as a government. So either of those reasons fit or make sense in this time period in um, Caesar's government. He's consolidating, he's strengthening the government, and he's making the empire at peace. And so he calls for the census in order to encourage those things. Um, Octavian or Caesar Augustus was thought so highly of by the Roman people that in Roman propaganda he was referred to as the savior of the world. So you can imagine Luke writing all of this and sending this message and realizing the, the contrast that is drawn between Caesar and his reign and the peace that he promises and the salvation that he promises and the baby in a manger who also promises peace on earth and to be the savior of the world. And so there's that contrast drawn at the very beginning of our narrative as Luke begins this story. Now, the other thing that's interesting to note through this passage is the repetition of the word all. I don't know if you heard that as we read, but in in verse 1, Caesar Augustus uh, said that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and All the people were on their way to register for the census in his own city, now Joseph. 
And so we go from all to Syria and all of the people to one individual man. And so what we recognize from that is God is orchestrating things on the global scene. He is creating censuses and he is moving nations and kingdoms and powers so that one family will travel 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Isn't that an amazing fact? God controls the course of nations and rulers and governments so that one individual moves his family 70 miles. That's the sovereign power of our God, and that's what's on display in the Christmas story. It's interesting to compare Luke's account with Matthew's account, and I hope that you've read both during this Christmas season. But if you remember in Matthew, it's like every time the Holy Family needs to move, an angel shows up, right? And the family doesn't move unless there's an angel telling them exactly where to go. Have you noticed that in Matthew? It's almost comical by the end. You're like, oh yeah, another angel. Wow. I mean, it's just at every time they move, an angel shows up. And it's interesting that in Luke, there's no mention of that. There's no mention of the angels appearing. And that's not because it didn't happen. It's just that Luke is drawing a very different emphasis and focus on what is going on in, Luke, in, in the Holy Family and their movement and all of that. It's no less miraculous, but it's just a different focus. Luke shows us that God is orchestrating and controlling the nations of the world in order to accomplish His plan for individuals. And that should be an incredibly comforting thought to us this morning. God isn't concerned with nations or with borders or with political entities. He's concerned with you. He's concerned with each and every one of us. And God uses the powers of this world to influence and direct individuals. Jesus came to save you and I. He came to save individuals. And God uses nations and powers to accomplish that individual redemption. That's an incredible picture this morning. But also, as we think about just what Mary and Joseph do in this story, it's very normal, isn't it? It's very average. As, as we said with Matthew, there's no angels that show up. There's no dreams that tell them what to do. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're moving in response to a government order. They're moving in response to what Caesar has said. And in the midst of that normal, mundane, everyday activity, God literally shows up. And I think that's also a wonderful encouragement for us this Christmas morning. God redeems the ordinary activity and movement of our life and accomplishes His purposes through that. I think this is especially true as we think about our families and parenting and and the work that you do with your children and with family members. Sometimes it feels like the most mundane, repetitive, um, useless activity that you can possibly imagine. And yet, it is through those very activities and that work that you do with your children that God shows up and He redeems that work and accomplishes His will through that. And so I think that's a wonderful reminder as we look at the Christmas story. God accomplishes his salvation through incredibly ordinary and mundane means. And I think that's what Luke really wants us to focus on as we look at this passage. The second thing that um, I noticed from this passage as we were reading it and studying it is simply the humility of Christ's birth. And so that's our, our first real point here. So if we look at verse 6 and 7, it says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, if you read anything about the Christmas story, right, this is the passage that people focus on. Everybody has an opinion about where Jesus was born. Some say it was a stable. Some say it was a cave. Some say he was just born at home. Some people say the inn was just a guest room in somebody's house. Other people say it was a hotel-style accommodation. Everybody has an opinion about what all of these words could possibly mean to provide insight as to where and when Jesus was born. And I don't mean to dismiss all of that. There's, there's great research that's been done there. But the point is, if we don't know, we don't know for a reason. God didn't reveal it to us because it's not important. And sometimes I think when we get so caught up in all of those little details that surround the story, we miss the most important part and the bottom line that Luke is trying to communicate with this passage. Because what Luke wants to draw our attention on and to focus on is the humility of Christ's birth. He doesn't care that we know that he was born at home or born in a cave or born in a stable, but what should grasp our attention is the fact that the Son of God was laid in a manger. Can you imagine that? The humility, the shame, the embarrassment of that should absolutely shock us as we read this passage. People have called it the embarrassment of the incarnation. God becoming flesh is humility enough. But then for God to become flesh and to not be born in a palace, not even to be born in a home, but to be born and laid in a manger should shock us as we read this passage. The humility that Christ exemplified through his birth is the emphasis that Luke wants us to see in this passage. Now, the purpose of the incarnation is not, first and foremost, to give us an ethical example. And yet, there are ethical implications that we draw from the incarnation. The incarnation and the purpose of it was to accomplish our salvation, and yet the biblical writers appeal to the incarnation as an example of how you and I should live. And so I think there's things that we can draw from this example that do convict us and do remind us of how we as believers are called to live. And I think the greatest example and encouragement here is that of humility. The same humility that Christ demonstrated in his birth, the same humility that Christ demonstrated by washing his disciples' feet, the same humility that led him to the cross to suffer and to die for us is the humility that he wants us to embody and to live out as well. If you go to visit the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem today, um, you'll see a huge, ornate cathedral sitting over the site where we traditionally assume Jesus was born. And most cathedrals and churches of that size and stature have an enormous, ornate, or elaborate door that you enter through. But the Church of the Nativity does not have a door like that. The Church of the Nativity has the door of humility. And in order to enter the Church of the Nativity, to see the place where Jesus was born, you have to stoop and sort of squeeze to go through a four-foot by two-foot opening. It's the only way to get into that building. And the, the lady who designed this church and who built it did that on purpose. 
Her goal with building an entrance that way, and it's remained unchanged for all of these years, is so that every single person who enters the place to see Jesus' birth must positionally humble themselves to go in and to behold this, this place. And so I want us to replicate that in our own lives, maybe not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, as we behold Christmas this year. Just as you physically bow to go into that church to view the place where Jesus is born, Christmas is a time for us to take stock in our own lives, to look for pride or selfishness in our own hearts, and to allow the Spirit to convict us as we look at the example of Christ, His willingness to, to, set it, to take on human flesh and to humbly come and serve us should be an example to all of us. Now, humility is not thinking that you're bad at something or thinking that you're not as good as somebody else. C.S. Lewis says humility is thinking of yourself less. It's selflessness. It's unselfishness. That's the essence of humility. The opposite of pride is to be unselfish, and another form of pride is selfishness. And so I want to encourage you in this season and in the weeks that come, Examine your life for those seeds of selfishness. Look for ways that you can serve others and care for others and not put yourself first or make your needs the most important thing. But look for ways that you can serve other people as you go through the season. And and may Christ's example of being born in human flesh and being laid in a manger provide the motivation and encouragement for you to do that. Now, Luke moves on from there, and we have the humility of his birth contrasted then with the glory of the angels, right? And so, we've just heard this this crazy thing that the Son of God was born and laid in a manger, the most shameful thing, embarrassing thing you can imagine. And then we have the chorus of the angels praising God and bringing glory to God. It's such a contrast to what has just happened in Bethlehem. So we pick up in verse 8. Now in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had departed from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, we can't overestimate the fact that the angels appear to shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest caste in society. They were dirty, they were stinky, they were common laborers. And something that I, I found in my study this time that I didn't know before, shepherds were also had a reputation for being dishonest. And I find that so amazing, and this may be a side note, that, that that picture, the shepherd, is the picture that Christ uses to describe his Messiahship, that he is the good shepherd, when shepherds had such a negative connotation in the culture at large there. 
And so the angels come, not to the palace, not to the important people, but they come to the shepherds. And they reveal this message of glory about the Messiah who has come. So the angel comes, and the shepherds are terribly afraid. They feared with a great fear, is literally what the passage says. They were terrified by one angel. And so that angel, although terrible to behold, brings a message of comfort. The angel says, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Good news is gospel. It is the euangelion. And so the birth of Christ is good news. It is the gospel. And it is good news because it brings great joy. And notice that this message, this good news, is for all people. So there's the third all that we've traced through the passage. And so while we saw Caesar controlling all of his land and trying to take stock of who was in his land and who he could tax, we see the Messiah coming to save all people. Now, as we're going to find out in the angel's claim, this doesn't mean that everybody will be saved, but this means that Christ comes to save all kinds of people. And I think that's exemplified by him coming to reveal the gospel to the shepherds, the lowest, dirtiest people in the world. Those are the people that Christ comes to and shares his gospel with. So kings and shepherds, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, Christ comes to save them all. Everyone needs the message of the gospel at Christmas. There's no one that is apart from the condemnation of sin and apart from the need that God has to redeem them. And so then, we were terrified by one angel, but then, verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God. So if you think that one angel was terrifying, can you imagine what it must have been like to see a heavenly army of angels? The language, there's not even language to describe what the shepherds saw that day. We can't even put it into words what they beheld and what they saw that morning. And so, how often do you think the heavenly host of angels was called out to celebrate something? They weren't showing up to celebrate Caesar's victories. They weren't showing up to celebrate the Olympic game winners. No. They show up to celebrate the birth of the Messiah, God becoming flesh and accomplishing redemption for his people. And so these are the angels that sit in the presence of God. These are the angels that daily, hourly, and every second behold the glory of the Lord. And yet, these are the same angels that on Christmas go, this is a big deal. We've got to come and celebrate because the Messiah has been born. Isn't that amazing? The heavenly hosts come out to celebrate this truth that the Son of God has become flesh to accomplish redemption for His people. And so as we think about this and as we conclude our time this morning with just a couple of thoughts, we can't look at the story of Scripture and remain unchanged by it. Do you recognize that angels that stand in the presence of God and daily see His glory and His power are overwhelmed with the glory and the beauty of what happens at Christmas? The truth that the Messiah has come to save His people prompted the angels to come out rejoicing and praising God and bringing glory to Him. 
And that should be true in our own lives today as we reflect on Christmas and what God has accomplished for us. It should be an anathema to us to read this story and to walk away from it unchanged. To read what happens at Christmas and to go, oh, well, there we read Luke for another year. What happens at Christmas is incredible. It is a miraculous event, and it should prompt us to worship and to praise our God in that way. The last thing I want us to look at, just briefly, is the claim that the angels make in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. This event that has happened on earth, the humility of Christ coming and being born, accomplishes glory for God in the highest heavens, to the highest heavens, to the greatest degree. God receives glory because of what has happened at Christmas. But it's not just glory in the highest, but on earth there will be peace among men. And that peace is accomplished by salvation. This is a, a figure of speech where the cause is, or the result is placed for the cause. And so what should be here is on earth salvation is accomplished for God's people. But that salvation brings peace for God's people. And so the angels draw our attention on that peace that we can enjoy because of the salvation that God brings. So glory to God in the highest and peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's an important qualifier, isn't it? Because who are the people that God is pleased with? God is pleased with those who have recognized their lack, who have recognized their sin and that they can't do anything on their own and are desperately in need of his salvation. Those are the ones whom God is pleased with. Those are the ones that he has chosen and who he has elected for his salvation. And so even in the Christmas story, we have election present, predestination. God has come not to save the whole world, not to save all people, but to save his elect. And for those people, there is peace on earth. For those who don't know God, later in Luke, Jesus says he brings a sword. And he brings judgment for those who do not know him. And so in Christmas, we have that contrast. And it's not a contrast in personality, but it sharpens our focus as to who our God is. We understand his love and his mercy for us so much better because we know his hatred of sin and the judgment that he brings to those who do not know him. And so it brings us even greater comfort and greater joy and greater peace in this world, to know that a holy God who didn't have to act on our behalf chose us and called us to enjoy salvation. And so that fact should bring us great joy and purpose this Christmas season. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, today we are so grateful for Christmas, and we are grateful for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Father, we look forward someday to to knowing some inkling of what it must have been like for those shepherds to behold the heavenly host and to see the glory of God displayed. And we eagerly anticipate and look forward to that time where we will be in your presence and where we will know you fully. But till then, Lord, help us to prioritize correctly our walk with you and the glory that we find in you. Help us to set aside anything that pulls us away from you and help us to focus purely and solely upon being the people that you have called us to be. And so thank you again for this time and may you bless the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.